And I'm thankful for the book of Nehemiah. It's a wonderful uh, account of God's work among his people to lay out his vision and his plan for his people to call them to the work that is huge and for them to go out and do the work only by the power and favor of God. As you turn to Nehemiah chapter 2, uh, the question that I would ask you is, have you ever faced any opposition in your life? I wonder why you chuckle. Have you ever faced trouble in your school or in your work, place of work, among your family or your neighborhood? Have you ever had opposition with your health or financial situation? Uh, have you ever had an enemy before? Have you ever been slandered or lied about? Have you ever had any type of opposition come against you? And we chuckle because, yes, we can say that in all areas of our life, in different ways, that as we look around the room, there's always opposition. And for you, if you are a follower of Christ, there is a great opposition that comes against you because of the name of Christ, which we were just lifting his name and praising him. I was praying this week and praying this morning that as we look at the book of Nehemiah, that the Lord would give us hope from his word. That we would read uh, the work that he did among his people and that we who face opposition from all areas of life from the, from the enemy would have hope in Jesus Christ. Today we look at the response of God's people as we ended last week in chapter 2 that Nehemiah says here's what God has planned to do and here's how he's going to do it and the people said let us build, let us rise and build. And also we will see that there is an enemy, an opposition that comes and they will use every method possible to stop the work of the rebuilding of Jerusalem and to stop the work that the people are doing that God has called them to do. We will see and we need to know from Scripture as we just had read from Ephesians chapter 6 is that the enemy's purpose is always to stop, uh, is try to stop God's people from doing God's plan. And the enemy hopes always that God's people will fold up their tents and go home. There's a constant attack on the truth of God's word and specifically on the gospel of Jesus Christ. The enemy does not want any of you to open your mouth and tell people the only hope that they have for life is Jesus Christ. And so the enemy is fierce, it is constant, and it will come against Christians around the world as soon as we mention the name of Jesus. The temptation is that we would fold our tents and go home and keep our mouths shut shut and never tell people that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father. As we look at Nehemiah chapter 2, the scriptural truth is this. Always expect opposition by the enemy when God is working his plans out through his people. Look with me at Nehemiah chapter 2. I'm going to read to you verses 18 through verse 20. This is Nehemiah, and he says, And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sinbalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshub the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebel rebelling against the king? 
Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will rise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. The word of God. Father, we thank you again that you've given us your word, that you have had it written down for us, and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bless the reading of the word and the preaching of the word, and you would help us to live accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. As you look at the text and where we, we left off last week, Nehemiah has journeyed about a thousand miles from where he was serving the king as the cupbearer. He arrives at Jerusalem with the vision and the plan God put on his heart after four months of praying uh, that God would remember his people and his promises to do what he had said to his people. And as he comes in, he inspects the walls at nighttime, and now he gathers the people, the, the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, uh, and all who would do the work that you read about in chapter 3. And what happens is that they are strengthened for God's good work. This is the first point in verse 18, is being strengthened for God's good work. In verse 18, he says, And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. If you have not read through the last two chapters in Nehemiah, I want you to go back and see that after four months of praying, him grieving over the ruin of the city and the departure of the glory of God from God's people, that uh, the king asks him, What is wrong? The king is the one who says, what do you want to do? Here, and he lays this out, and the king's like, all right, here's some letters, here's these things. Oh, by the way, let me send with you some of my cavalry and some of my officers from the army. And he sends them to Jerusalem. He's like, how long are you going to be gone? Oh, I'll be gone this long. We know from the, the book of Nehemiah, he's gone 12 years from the king. And he points out the favor of God is with us. And look at what the king has done. If you go back and you read the book of Ezra, you'll see that this same king declared that the city of Jerusalem would not be rebuilt. And when the king makes an edict and a law like that, you don't overturn it. And yet it's the king who overturned his own edict and says, Nehemiah, go and rebuild the city. And so you see, he says, I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. Again, Nehemiah says, this is the huge vision. These walls of these cities to be rebuilt. I mean, they weren't all completely torn down all the way to the ground, but the people who lived there, approximately 49,000 of them that came back with Ezra, they saw the ruin of Jerusalem. They're like, what? Rebuild this? And then when he said, and God is with us because of this, then they said, let us what? What's it say there? Let us rise up and build. That's only by the power of God strengthening the people to do that. I mean, God, again, gives them the plan. He gives them this vision. He's the one who will complete his work. And so I've always wondered, what are the things that God lays upon the hearts of his people to do the work that he's called us to do, to make disciples who love God and others, to share the gospel with those who are lost and the ways that God does that. And you see how God puts his vision in the hearts of his people and he's the one who directs those things for his glory. And he's the one that empowers his people to go. The visions that fail, the missions that fail, the plans that fail, generally it's because or always because it was not God's plan to begin with. And so I can tell you in years of ministry, there's times where I would have something that come to my mind that like we need to do this in ministry. And that plan failed because it was not what God had. 
At other times when God was something doing a work, it's like, well, I, I don't know if that's a plan, but then God fulfills those things. It's wonderful because he's the one who gets all the glory. He's the one who does all the work, and therefore, just like Nehemiah had to trust in the Lord, rebuild the walls, the people are like, what? Rebuild this? He's like, yes, the Lord is with us. And if you read on, you get to chapter 6. It says in 52 days, they rebuilt the walls. They rebuilt the gates. And there was security in Jerusalem and this picture of the glory of God among the people once again. And so they strengthened their hands for the good work. It's again, it's like the... Um, uh, the person or the coach who gets up and, and gets the team all rallied to go out and win the game. These people are excited and ready to go and do the work. But I wonder at times, again, do we ever uh, look to the Word of God in the sense and we see what God wants to do among our lives and we go, no way, God, that's too huge. You want us to go share the gospel with those people? You want me to knock on that door? You want me to dare say something to my teacher? No, Lord, there's no way. Those people aren't going to believe in you. There's, that's too big of a vision, Lord. You want us as a church to make disciples? We struggle with doubt. It's because we rely on our own strength at times. And we have real fears because we know in our hearts we cannot do any of this apart from the Lord God Almighty. I was wondering if you thought about this verse last week, which we ended with. It's been something I've read every, every day this week and continue to be reminded. Psalm 20, verse 7. It says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's what the people with Nehemiah we're needing to do because here in just a verse you see the opposition comes and everything is coming against the people of God to rebuild these walls that God has called them to do. Look back in chapter 2. Look at verses 9 through 10. This is what we read last week. Nehemiah says, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. The king had given him letters to, to make his way back now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, verse 10, but when Sinbalat the Ronite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. The enemy is mentioned there. And here when we, in the text today, when you get to verse 19 and 20 here, you see that same enemy arising. They, were, they did not want anyone to come and help the people of God. Again, to think that they controlled the surrounding areas, that they were the ones who uh, 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 could uh, do whatever they wanted to the people who were living there. And to think of someone coming back under the name of the king on behalf of God's people, restore them, these enemies were greatly angered. And so we see in verse 19, in the second point, there's opposition to God's good work opposition to God's good work. A reporter was interviewing a man on his 100th birthday. Think, wow, 100 years. And the reporter said to him, he says, what are you most proud of in life? And he said, well, I don't have any enemies in the world. The reporter thought, wow, what a beautiful thought. 
That's so inspirational. And the old man said, yep, I outlived every one of them. <laughs> I say that because in this world, Jesus says we have trouble. And we have enemies. Some of you may think back to, or if you are in this age, elementary school or junior high. Junior high was brutal. The bullying, the attacks, the lies, the ways that kids would be so uh, uh, unloving. Some of you have memories of those times. Hurtful, painful times. You're like, those were some, I had some enemies then. Well, here's some real enemies that come against Nehemiah, that come against the people of God that have been given this vision and plan. It says in verse 19, it mentions Senballat, Tobiah, and it adds, and Geshub the Arab heard of it. They jeered at us and they despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? They automatically are bringing up the decree that was what we read about in Ezra. Hey, the king said no one can rebuild this. And yet even though Nehemiah has these letters, they begin to attack. And like Nehemiah and all of Israel had an opposition and an enemy, all who have faith in Jesus Christ have an enemy. Joel was just reading to you from Ephesians chapter 6. And the enemy of all followers of Christ is Satan. All of the fallen angels, the demons... And all who hate Jesus Christ in this world and his church. Therefore, a new believer may be surprised by this. But if you've been following Jesus for a while, you should not be surprised. There is a real enemy at and on the constant attack against God's people. Because there is a battle ground that is waged. And it is this declaring of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the darkness and those walking in darkness. And therefore God's people are on the mission and his vision and his plan to declare Jesus Christ crucified for us, that he is the one who shed his blood so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And he died and he, what, on the third day? Rose again. So that through faith in him, we may believe be saved there's a battle in this world coming against the church sometimes in places as in this world even within the church to stop telling people about Jesus we must never waver we must never turn and we must never back down from sharing the love of Christ and declaring the grace of God that's found in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. It says here that they were jeered at or they were laughed at and they were despised by the enemy. This happens to all believers. Again, and if you're not a believer in this place today, I pray that you do come to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But even before Christ, you, some of you face these oppositions in the world where someone jeers at you and laughs at you and mocks you and despises you. Well, in chapter 4 of Nehemiah, it gets to the point where the enemy begins to threaten Nehemiah and the people saying, we're going to murder you. We're going to kill you and attack you. We know that Satan is the father of lies. 
The Word of God says Satan is a murderer from the beginning. We should never be surprised of threats against the body of Christ. Again, the, the enemy here, their goal is to get Nehemiah to stop building, be fearful, and go back to the king. Nehemiah, just go back and serve the king. You were happy there. You had favor with the king. That's why the threats come. The enemy's goal is to get the people of God to stop building, that they would start fighting, that they would forget about the walls and the gates and just stay despised and laughed at by the nations around them. And so the enemy, as in Nehemiah, the spiritual enemy that we face today, will use every possible tactic and method to discourage the people of God. Here's some of the tactics some of the tactics that we see when we read Scripture and we see uh, throughout the Word of God the way the enemy attacks the people of God. The enemy uses lies, deception, murder, every kind of destructive activity when you read these things. The enemy uses temptation. The enemy uses doubt. The enemy uses guilt, fear, confusion. Do you know that the enemy even uses sickness? You're like, what do you mean by that? You ever read the book of Job? Satan comes before the Lord and he said, well, hey, my servant Job. So Satan goes and takes everything that he owned away, destroys it. His children are killed that day. And Job weeps, but he praises God. Another day or time goes by and Satan comes before the Lord. And he's like, hey, you, you, you seen Job? And he's like, my servant, he didn't turn or waver. He goes, yeah, but if you strike him with uh, illness, he'll turn. And God says, okay, his health is in your hands, Satan. You cannot take his life. And Satan afflicted him from head to toe to get Job to turn from praising God. Job's wife even had told him, why don't you just curse God and die? But Job, sitting in ashes and dust, scraping his sores with pottery, praised the Lord. And God even corrected him throughout because there's doubts. We're, we're, we're tempted by the enemy to doubt God's truth. We face that as believers. Well, does it really say that? Did God really mean that? And we doubt. That's what the enemy wants us to do. And Job was like, even after he doubted, and even though he fought his friends that were saying, well, hey, what about these things? God reveals himself in a whirlwind. It's like, Job, who are you? Were you there when I said, let there be light? And God corrected him. And God corrected also his friends. And God worked all those things. And he blessed Job after that. But the enemy uses tactics, even like sickness, to come against God's people. The enemy uses methods and tactics of envy and pridefulness and slander. And again, the goal of the enemy is for you, church, to fold your tent and go home. The goal of the enemy is for you to fight and argue with one another so that the world looks in and goes, that's a church? Look at 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Verses 8 through 11. <clears throat> Peter says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, <clears throat> prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. 
Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings, suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. <clears throat> and after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. But did you see the beginning there? <clears throat> Satan prowls like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You know who that someone is? You, me. Satan wants to devour us with his tactics and his methods so that we would believe the lies that he spreads to us and we would doubt God and we'd be tempted to compromise and we would be fearful of opening our mouth and declaring the gospel to the, those living in darkness. So there's two kinds of attacks that we see in Scripture. There's attacks and opposition by the enemy on the corporate church and attacks and opposition on individuals. So look at the corporate church for a minute. Think about Christians who live in the country of Iran. In secret. Christians who have been beaten, Christians who have been imprisoned, and Christians who have been murdered in the country of Iran because they love Jesus. And I could go on of all the countries and the places in this world where this happens. We must pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ that we may never see in this lifetime, that we may never even hear of, that they would stand for the truth of Jesus Christ because that is the vision for Christ's church. Well, how about the corporate church in America? The culture attacks Christians in America. The culture attacks churches if we are not tolerant enough or open-minded enough. You see this all the time. I don't have to explain it to you. The church in America is scorned and ridiculed by the unbelieving world and the culture in the United States. The culture in this country wants Christians and church, Christian churches to be a religious, tolerant group who will just accept everyone's belief. Don't tell them that their belief about another God is wrong. Culture wants you to bend your knee to the rest of the world to never say that Jesus Christ is the only way. But yet, that's what Scripture tells us. Culture is offended when we would dare say, well, here's what the Word of God says. Culture is offended when we would read Scripture that says that God created male and female in His image. And what happens when the church bends the knee and folds their tent to culture is terrible results. The result is what we read in the book of Revelation, the lukewarm church where people come to church to sit in a chair, to hear a good sermon, to have a bit of fellowship and coffee before they head out into their week. That is what many people as Christians in this world think we are called to do. It's so far from the truth of God. 
The culture does not want the church to ever say that adultery or sex before marriage is something that we would dare say is a sin or disagree with culture. The culture does not want us to ever say that adultery and sex before marriage and homosexuality is a sin. But the most egregious act by the church against culture is when we say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. That's the most egregious thing that we would dare say as Christians in a world with a culture that hates Jesus. The temptation for you and I is that we would never open our mouths again and we would say, well, someone else will go to them. If they just go to that church, if they just go to those people, if they just hear from those missionaries, God hasn't called me to open my mouth. He's called me to do this instead. Do not believe the lies of Satan. That's an attack, uh, an opposition by the enemy on the corporate church in the world. But how about on you and I individually? Again, as I asked at the beginning, have you been mocked or ridiculed or slandered or, or, or lied about? That generally does the trick for many Christians to just be silent. You're, you're getting ready to share the gospel with someone. Oh, there's, there's, I, I can't say, I don't know what to say. I don't have the words. There's no way. This, and, and, we, and we shut our mouths and be quiet. Oh, I couldn't serve in that ministry or I couldn't go on that mission trip because I'm not trained like those people. I couldn't do these things. Uh, 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 I can't give in this because I won't be able to pay these bills and on and on. We believe lies of the enemy instead of the truths of God and his promises for his people. And so my question for you is, how do you individually as a Christian respond when opposition comes against you? I, I, I wrestled with this. I'm like, do I be real with the church or not? I'll just be honest. I'm like, this week was a really hard week. Um, I received an email where I was ridiculed, slandered, and lied about. And I was like, wow. They didn't even send it to me. And... Um, I'm just trying to be real. In my flesh, I wanted to sit down and write a defense. I was hurt, and I wanted to write a defense and send it to everyone on that list that got the email. And so this was on Tuesday morning, and so I know in my flesh I would just sit down and defend myself. And instead, the Lord settled me to sit in my office and open my Bible. I know it sounds bad, but I didn't want to do that at the time. And read Psalm chapter 20. And trust in the Lord. And then come across Ephesians chapter 6. And be reminded that our battle is not with flesh and blood. But it's with the principalities. And it's Satan and demons. And then I was reading the Gospels. And I was reminded of Christ's forgiveness of my sins where I could say, Lord, I, I, I truly forgive this situation and these people. But I battled because Tuesday night I came back and I'm sitting upstairs while youth group's going on and I just sat there um, 
I was ready again to write a defense. And on my desk are some things and family and friends and people give me and I saw this book wedged in there and I what is that? And I forgot about this. This is a book. I was like, I don't even think I ever read it. My mom gave it to me. She passed away 10 years ago this year. And as I opened, I was like, wow, I found all this stuff that she wrote to me in it. I'm like, what? And I opened up to this page. It's like, Paul, you need to forgive like Jesus forgiven you. I was like, mom, why'd you write that? And just paid, it was this guy, Peter Marshall. I'm like, who is this guy? He was a pastor in Scotland. I didn't even, I didn't even know this. And I read these things. There's quotes. And this is one of the things that I read. He says, before you speak words, you are their master. After you speak them, they are your master. And so I wrote this down on my note. Before you text or email words, you are their master. After you text and email words, they are your master. You ever sent that email or text and you're like, oh, why did I do that? I know I was angry. I know I was upset, but I really didn't mean that. Oh, man. I'm thankful the Lord would bring me through these passages because I honestly was struggling. And Ephesians 6 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I was crying out to God saying, God, are any of these people going to defend me? And God said, I'm your defender. And I rested in that. How do you respond when God, when, how do you respond to the Lord and in his word when attacks come against you? How do you respond? Do you get so angry that you begin to yell at your family members or your spouse? Are you known as an angry person because you just blast whatever? Is the Lord granting you peace to be able in a moment when you are so angered to just sit quietly with him? How do you respond is really what we should look at because this is what we see in Nehemiah and the response as the attack comes on. In chapter 4, we'll see that as they work with a trowel in one hand, they have a sword in the other. And so look at verse 20, this last part and the third point is that God will prosper his people. He's promised this from his word. And we see this truth among specifically here Nehemiah and the nation of Israel. He says in verse 20, here's Nehemiah's answer to the enemy. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. <clears throat> he says, basically repeats to them what God has always pro already promised to the nation of Israel. And he says, if you go back to chapter 1, he's praying, he says, God, remember these things you promised us. You said if we ever turned to the idols of the world and worship, that you would scatter us, that we'd go into captivity. But you said, when we repent and turn to you, you will bless us and prosper us. And he remembers that, reminds God, even though he doesn't need to be reminding in prayer. And then you read here in the text, he's reminding the people who are listening as well as the enemy 
In Genesis 17, God made a promise to Abraham to give them, to make them a nation, to give them the promised land. In Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 28, God says, you disobey and I'll separate you and I'll destroy the nation, he says, but when you repent, I will rebuild my people. And so we see God's promises in what he's mentioning here, literally happening in the book of Nehemiah as they rebuild these walls, as they stand before the Lord for half the day reading God's word and the Lord does the work there. And he says to the enemy, but you have no portion no right or claim in Jerusalem. You see, the promises were only for the nation of Israel, not for those who are worshiping false gods. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll end with this. Ephesians chapter 6, which was read to you earlier. Um, God always... Well, let me ask you this. I already started to answer it. Does God fulfill his promises to his people? Always, right? Jesus said he's returning, so we're waiting for that promise to be fulfilled. When the enemy is on the attack, God has given his people a way to stand under the fiery arrows of the enemy and to stand for the truth of God's word. It says in Ephesians chapter 6, <clears throat> Verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Look at verse 13. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore. Having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The belt of truth Jesus Christ says he is the truth and therefore the word of God always states what is true. You stand firm as the enemy attacks with the belt of truth which is Jesus Christ put on. When the enemies and the lies of Satan come, you cling to the truth of Jesus Christ. You stand firm in the truth that Jesus Christ died for you on the cross in your place for your sins. That he paid the price to ransom you, to buy you with what? His shed blood. That Jesus Christ did die, but we stand firm in the truth that Satan and the demons have been defeated at the cross. We stand firm in the truth that Jesus, who was buried in the tomb, conquered death on the third day, rose from death to life. And we stand firm on the truth of the gospel that through faith in Jesus Christ that we are given the righteousness of Christ. So when God the Father sees you, he says, that is my son, that is my daughter, who I sent my son for, who I've adopted to myself. They are the family of God. They have an inheritance set for them and I will one day glorify them as, as God is glorified for eternity. Ephesians 6 verse 16, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. The shield of faith extinguishes the flaming darts and arrows of the evil one. And what you have this picture is, picture is that some of the Roman guards would have a shield that was wrapped in material that they would soak in water so that when the enemy would fire these fiery darts and missiles toward them, it would hit their shield and it would be put out. This is your faith in Christ 
as the opposition comes against you, as Satan lies to you, as Satan tempts you, as the culture wants you to bend your knee, you hold the shield of faith standing firm in Jesus Christ and the word of God and faith in Christ will extinguish those arrows. Church, this is what God has given you and therefore we must cling to it. As it repeatedly says in chapter 6 there, put it on. Put the armor on daily. May we read this daily and put those things on. In verse 20, he says, we will arise and build. Back in Nehemiah here, stay in 6 there. But it says, we will arise and build. We will not stop the good work. If you go back and you read Ephesians 6 verse 15, the good work is putting on the shoes of the gospel. God has placed you in this place to declare the truth to the people living in the apartments, to declare the truth to all the people here in this neighborhood. He's given you that mission. That's why you're in this room today. And therefore, that is the work that we are to do. That is the work that we are to continue is the gospel declaration to all those in our neighborhood and in our city and to the ends of the earth, those who are walking in darkness, to tell them of Christ crucified, risen for them. Lastly, there it says the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. If we don't pick it up, we don't have the weapon in our hand. And just as Nehemiah and the people had a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other, that's how God calls you to do the gospel work today. The truth of God's Word in one hand, while you're doing the work of declaring the gospel serving one another, going to the ends of the earth with the other hand. That's the picture in Nehemiah, and that's the picture for you as the body of Christ and for this church. I'll end with this verses here in Ephesians 6, verse 18. With the armor, it says, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert, with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. We must pray against the opposition that does and come, does and will, and does come against the Christians in this world. We must pray for God's plans to be laid out the declaration of the gospel, both corporately and individually. We must pray for God's vision of discipling people and to building his church to be fulfilled in this place, in this time. We must pray that God would build his church for his glory and his great name and be reminded of Jesus' words to Peter. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I would encourage you this afternoon to read Hebrews chapter 11 and 12. Would you this afternoon and whatever you do, take a few minutes and read Hebrews chapter 11 and 12. No matter what opposition you face in your homes, in your workplaces, in your schools, in the church, and wherever it may be, it is a great comforting passage to know that there are believers who went before us, who faced such persecution, and God kept them standing with their eyes fixed on Jesus as they ran the race, and that's what you and I are called to do today. I keep saying one more passage. I'm sorry. That's the problem when you get up to preach. You've probably known, 
heard about or even as a child sang about David and Goliath and David and his stones. And when I think about the enemy of Satan and demons, I was reminded of this text as David goes before Goliath. Goliath laughs at him. He says, who is this dog that you're sending after me? Again, this is what the enemy says against Christians. Who is this dog or who are these dogs that are going to tell people about Jesus? And here's what David says in 1 Samuel 17, verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead, bo- give the, give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword or, and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we close our time and we sing uh, about um, your glory, as we sing about your great name, that we would be reminded today that the opposition to your people is great because the opposition does not want the gospel to go out. Father, may we be a people united on the truth of the gospel of Jesus. May we be the people of God who love one another, that would encourage and support one another and remind each other of the truths that you've laid out for us, that we would pray for one another and walk alongside one another, that as we stand firm with the armor on, that the arrows of the enemy would be extinguished. Father, would you protect our hearts and our minds today would you protect our mouths from speaking evil would you give us your spirit to empower us to open our mouths even as we leave from this place if we go to a place to eat a meal that the people that we see we would say and speak to them the truth of the gospel father may you be glorified in our lives Father, for any who have heard the gospel today that are here in this place, I pray that today is the day of salvation for them, that they would believe in Jesus Christ crucified, risen again, and that you would save them. We glorify you, Jesus.